I've spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious fund managers around. And now I've decided to take the plunge and start my own fund. The real question is, how will I do it? With no investors and without an Ivy League degree, this podcast is going to give you the answer. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we start and build multi-million dollar investment funds. I'm Bridger Pennington, and this is Investment Fund Secrets. All right, all right. Welcome back to the show. Today we got with us Brian Burke. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? Great. This is going to be a fun episode. For people uh, that don't know you already, Brian is the CEO of Praxis Capital. They have over 3,000 multifamily units. And we, we talked earlier, you're, you went from the syndication model all the way now into the fund model. Also the author of The Hands-Off Investor, an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate. Uh, this is going to be a fun episode, talking to a bona fide fund manager that's done this. How long have you guys been running your funds and syndications, by the way? Well, let's see. I started in real estate 30 years ago, and I started uh, raising money for private offerings in, uh, in our investments uh, about 20 years ago. So 20 years in the capital rate raising business. Wow. And, uh, which is, which is amazing. Anyone over, you know, everyone's a, <laughs> I love right now in the markets, everyone's a genius trader, right? Cause they're trading in an up market for someone that's actually been through a few market corrections and crashes. That's when, you know, someone's a, a seasoned investor, like what your book talks about. Um, what, what spurred on the book? What, what brought you to the point of, you know what, I'm gonna write a book. We, I, we talked just briefly earlier. It's, it's a grind to put out a book, write a book, which you said as well. But what, what spurred you to write The Hands-Off Investor? Yeah, it is a grind. And that thing's 350 pages. So really, it's like writing two books. So it was like a double grind. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, I, it was uh, it was a combination of a lot of things. You know, I'd uh, been in this business for a long time and people for years have told me I should write a book. And I held it off for about as long as I could until the noise got so loud that I couldn't ignore it anymore. That was part of it. Uh, another part of it was is that I was I was watching people investing in passive real estate offerings and they didn't know what they were looking for. They didn't know what questions to ask. I was surprised at some of the questions we would get from very sophisticated, accredited investors. And, uh, you know, I'm on the other end of the phone basically thinking, you know, this is the wrong question to be asking. And, and I realized that even people that invest in syndications frequently didn't know what questions to ask. And then finally, I had a friend of mine who invested in a passive real estate syndication uh, and lost her entire life savings. And I felt that if there was something I could do to help prevent that from happening to just one more person, then probably all that effort would be worth it. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a noble cause <laughs> as well. So thank you for your work you've put in. What are some of those, you mentioned some questions that people were just kind of clueless on. What were some of those, a few examples? Oh, well, you know, a lot of them just are, are people, they want to start in with, you know, well, tell me what the forecasted uh, return is, or tell me what the pref is, or, um, uh, or questions like um, stuff that like really, really doesn't matter at all. Like, uh, uh, you know, just, just, I, I can't, I just draw a blank because there's just so many, so many crazy questions spurring around in my head right now. Yeah. But, you know, one of the big ones is, is um, people would focus on uh, preferred return and they would focus on fees and splits. Mm 
And that seemed to be where everybody was drawn to and completely ignoring what the real question was, which is, you know, how long have you been doing this? Have you survived a market cycle? What was the worst deal you ever had and how did you handle it? Uh, you know, some very specific questions, because what what investors need to figure out is what kind of a character does this person have that I'm investing with? What kind of experience do they have? Uh, what kind of track record do they have? And instead, they're focusing on elementary school questions about, you know, return and preferred uh, and deal structure and stuff that isn't really going to uh, determine whether or not this investment is going to be successful or not. Hmm, very interesting. Um, I like that a lot, actually, that to go through that now. I And you, you've got some uh, 20 years in the capital raising business, like you said before. You've obviously seen some shifts in the, the world in general, but in, I, I would guess in investors as well. And I actually was talking to a fund manager just a few weeks ago and he was like, man, we have had such an interesting time raising capital during this crypto run and Dogecoin run. And he goes, we have all these investors that are like, well, like, you, yeah, you're offering me a 16 or a eight, whatever the, the you know, kind of the, the hopeful return is. He goes, well, I'll just put my money in Dogecoin. And they, he was just like, this is just bonkers to me that we have to now compete. It's like, it's not even the same. We're not, why are we talking about Dogecoin in our, in our asset class? And, and I think investor shifts, especially right now with money printing, and, and we've just had this crazy market run the last little bit. What have you seen on your end in the capital raising business? Have you seen a big shift in how you raise money and who you find? And, and on the other side of the coin is you have negative interest rates. You have I think it's around $18 trillion at trading at zero or negative interest rates around the world. You have people looking for yield. So my back to my question is, what changes have you seen over the last 20 years in the way you've raised capital and investors' mindset? Has it been relatively the same or have, have things shifted? Well, the undercurrent of your question started with people comparing passive offerings in real estate to cryptocurrency. And you know that just kind of dovetails back to your, your earlier question about you know, what questions were people asking that were the wrong question? Well, there's just another example of it. People were asking the question about return and ignoring the question about risk. Mm. And when you're when you're looking at any investment, you have to balance risk and return uh, together and not as separate components, but together. So uh, I think that, you know, if you really broke down the risk profile of a cryptocurrency investment and you compare that to the risk profile, of some real estate offerings, you'd see that they're completely apples uh, and oranges. So that's a big thing. But people, uh, no matter what, they're searching for yield. And, and that's really what people are trying to figure out is like, okay, I've got this money. What am I going to do with it? Where can I put it? Uh, where I can earn the most that I can off of it. And that's caused real estate to become increasingly popular. Uh, and that's made the capital raising uh, uh, segment of our business the easier part. And it's funny because it's always a shift, right? And and people say like, oh, it's, you know, I'm not having any trouble at all raising money. I'm having trouble finding deals. Uh, and then they say like, I wish it was 2009 again because there were deals everywhere. Mm -hmm. But what they forget or what they don't know because they didn't live through this era is that in 2009, when there were deals everywhere, 
it was next to impossible to raise money. It was like squeezing blood out of a rock because at that time it was risk that was dominating people's uh, investment decisions. And it was like, well, I don't want to invest in real estate because I don't want to catch a falling knife or the market is toxic or there's all kinds of things wrong with real estate. That's why I don't want to invest in it. Yet it was the best time to be investing in real estate. You were buying at the bottom. Well, now you're seeing the same kind of thing with cryptocurrencies, right? People are ignoring the risk factor and they're just looking, they're zeroing in on the return. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're doing the same thing with real estate. Uh, it's just, you know, now is really uh, uh, the wrong time to ignore risk entirely. I, I think that's that's spot on. Right now you see a lot of investors that are flush, that are looking to play capital and, and lack of, yeah, I, I love that analogy though, back to 2009, it's just, it just has shifted, right? A lot of capital, low deals, a lot of deals, low capital of how it shifts. We've talked about market timing a little bit so far. I want to I want to hear your thoughts. And again, this is not market, you know, investment advice, whatever, all the disclaimers. But I want to hear from from Brian Burke. What what's going on in your brain right now looking forecasting for the next, you know, 12 to 18, maybe 24 months, specifically in the real estate markets. We've seen a huge run up. We've seen a lot of capital at the markets. We've seen the Fed trying to taper inflation. What and what is your crystal ball hold? for the next 18, 24 months. We'll talk real estate markets first, but we can, we can talk broader, just macroeconomics as well. But what for, for you, what do you see the next 24 months? Well, I see a lot of sales. Um, you know, that's one thing that uh, uh, I, I didn't want to be a net seller, but we've become one. Uh, we're, uh, we'll probably sell over a thousand units out of our portfolio this year. And uh, we'll be lucky if we added uh 300 to go in uh, behind those. So what we're seeing is this is a really good time to harvest the crop. It is a difficult time to plant a seed. And so uh, I, I think right now we're, I'm focused heavily on risk mitigation. To me, that's most important. I, it's, um, I, I see a lot of investors chasing yield and trying to engineer yield and manufacture yield using uh, financing that is really risky, uh, you know, low down payments, bridge loans, uh, pref equity slices behind bridge loans. I mean, anything they can do to minimize the amount of equity brought into a deal, because when you're buying in like a three cap environment, which is what we're seeing yeah. right now, uh, you're, you're, you're seeing that people have to bring in as little capital as possible in order to get that you know, double digit return that they're seeking or that high teens return. Uh, but in my opinion, that's way too risky. I, I would rather be chasing a 10 to 13% return uh, and have a safe financing and a very conservative structure because I've, I've seen this, uh, I've, I've read this book before and, uh, there's a time when people get hurt when they throw caution to the wind. And so I think now is the time to be prudent and conservative and accept that returns right now are lower. It doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate. It doesn't mean now's a terrible time to get in. It just means that if you're looking for high teens, 20s, uh, you know, think again. Interesting. So and I love that about your focus on risk mitigation. I think a lot of a lot of uh investors in general just throw that to the wind 
And you've already brought that up a couple of times here. So right now you guys are harvesting a lot of your portfolio. Congrats on that. It's obviously a great time to sell, at least as of the date of recording right now. <laughs> do you see a cycle in the real estate markets coming soon? Do you, do you think the Fed are, is going to raise rates? Do you think they can? What do you see going forward from a, a monetary policy? Well, it's, it's difficult to predict what you know, government bureaucrats are going to do. And, and also we have to, we have to paint that in the backdrop of how much does it matter? Uh, because the Fed could do nothing and traders can bid the 10 year up to the moon. Uh, and that can affect fixed rate mortgage interest rates. Uh, the Fed could raise interest rates and the 10 year could fall or, you know, now the SOFR rate that we're using for floating rate debt is hovering around a hundredth of a percent wow. right now, <laughs> give or take. Uh, you know, where is that going to go and who's in control of that? Uh, that's what worries me more than anything that the mm -hmm. Fed is going to do. Uh, I, I think that we, we are in uh, an inflationary environment or we're, we're looking to be in an inflationary environment. And I'm, I'm certainly no economist, but uh, I can see when everything around me is going up in price. I can see when there's bidding wars over labor, you know, used to be bidding wars over material or whatever, but now it's bidding wars over labor. I heard a, a I was reading a, a comment the other day from a friend of a friend who's trying to hire for their coffee store and offering $28 an hour for a wow. coffee barista that would have been a $12 an hour position just a year ago. That's how desperate people are for workers. That's ultimately going to translate to higher prices, higher wages, translate to higher rents. Uh, so I, I think there's there's inflation in the horizon. Now, having said that, real estate is, you know, essentially by definition, a hedge against inflation. Uh, and I think it makes a lot of sense to have real estate in your portfolio in an inflationary climate. It doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Now, it might mean that eventually uh, borrowing rates are going to increase. And when borrowing rates increase, that's going to uh, create a headwind on pricing. Uh, and so, the, you know, there's people right now that are looking at, you know, well, we're buying at a three and a half cap and we're going to exit at a three and a half cap in five years. And the chances of that happening, I think, are quite slim. I think you're going to see cap rates decompressing. I've been saying this for years, though, so it hasn't happened yet. But uh, I still think, you know, we're going to see cap rates decompressing. and That's going to create a headwind on price. But there's also a tailwind to price, right? And that tailwind is increasing income. As rents go up, incomes go up. And as incomes go up, the price of real estate goes up. So you, these two factors are pushing and pulling against one another. I think ultimately, where does it land? I think prices continue to rise, but I think there's... Um, you know, there's risk in the horizon and there's reasons to be cautious. And that prudent. was a great summary of that. And I want to ask a few follow-up questions. Um, so, and, and back to your point, you said you've been saying this for years and that's what we've heard for years since I've, since 2016, 2017, we've heard, oh, there's a crash coming. That something's going to happen, you know, and it just hasn't happened yet. And it feels like the Fed has propped us up now with, with money printing. And you saw the uh, report last week on the CPI. They're, they're trying to say, this is all transitory. This is all because of COVID and shutdowns. I don't, I'm not a believer that it's a transitory inflation. I think the Fed is trying to muzzle what is going on. And they're there. It, it's potentially getting out of control where you're hiring a, a coffee barista, barista for 28, $26 an hour. Um, is pretty uh is pretty tall tale signs of what's happening what's shifting so at least in your guys's portfolio it sounds like though you are moving to a a stronger cash position is that correct 
Yeah, that's that is right. And yeah, I've been saying for a long time that, you know, cap rates were going to decompress and, you know, even a broken watch is right twice a day. So, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that is is, uh, is what I'm banking on. But I, I do feel that, um, uh, you know, cap rates are are once again at a historic low. Uh, and eventually the tide will turn. Everything always reverts back to the mean sooner or later. And, you know, we may see a good 15 or 20 year run and I could be wrong for 15 or 20 years, but eventually that tide's going to shift. Now, what I think is important isn't so much of trying to be certain of where the tide is because you'll never really know when the shift is, is, uh, going to happen the next day. Uh, but the, but really your defense mechanism is to just be prepared for it and make sure that you have enough cash reserves, make sure that you're putting enough money down that you're not over leveraged, make sure that you've got a wide enough margin between the cash a property can, uh, can bring in versus the uh, debt service that you have to pay out and those kinds of things that will help you survive through a down cycle. When I look back to 2009 and six, seven, eight, and nine, that period of time, uh, I was buying foreclosed real estate and it was everywhere. It was like drinking from a fire hose, mm. but almost every property I bought uh, with very few exceptions was encumbered by debt more than the property was worth and the banks were getting rid of it uh, for less than market value just to get out of it. And those owners that had too much debt were the ones that were losing properties. And if you think back to that era, there were people losing properties left and right. I mean, there were banks just in in one county, I saw banks losing tens of millions of dollars a day on properties they were taking to foreclosure sale for less than their mortgage balance. You just don't want to be on the other side of that. And the way to be on the not on the other side of that is to be conservative, prudent with your money and, and be able to handle the, what's going on. So do you see something like that coming then? Uh, 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 maybe it's a black swan event. We don't know what's coming, but a, a, a major market correction. I mean, Michael Burry even tweeted this morning. He, he thinks we're in the everything bubble. bubble. It's going to be two times bigger than the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. Do you see something like that, that happening on the horizon? I don't. Uh, I don't think there's going to be another 2007, 8, 9 style great financial collapse. I don't see that happening right now. Uh, but I do see uh, incre an, an increase in the number of people willing to take outsized risk. Mm -hmm. And and ultimately, uh, that will lay the foundation for that type of a bubble to burst. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we're there yet. Uh you know, especially in the single family market. Gosh, in, in 05, 04, 05, people were buying houses with no income qualification, no job comfort, you know, I used to call them ninja, ninja loans, loan. no income, yeah. no oh, job, yeah. no asset, <laughs> yeah. right? So, and, and that, was, that was what was forming the foundation of residential real estate. And then people were getting 100% loan to value financing with negative amortization that was running it up max 125 LTV. That kind of stuff was laying the foundation for a massive bubble. Mm. Well, now what we're seeing is we're seeing a ton of people paying cash, uh, a lot of people with good down payments, but give it five years, you know, and maybe we're back to where we were in 05. I could see it heading that way. We're not there yet, but I could see it heading that way. On the multi side, I'm, I'm seeing prices getting bid up so incredibly high. Uh, that I have to worry for the survivability of those of those buyers. Mm -hmm. Now, if if the market continues the way it has, they'll be fine. Uh, but if there's anything 
that throws uh, a, a wrench in the wheel, that wheel comes to a grinding halt really quick. Mm-hmm. And the ones that are going to be hurt the most are going to be the ones that you know extended themselves the farthest. And so just don't be that guy. I love it. I, I want to ask you, Brian, on this kind of same thread, but a little bit different topic. The psychology, and I'm talking just individual investors. It's hard, and they call it the FOMO economy right now. Of everyone's feeling like they're missing out on the next great thing, and there's these huge run-ups, and oh man, I missed out, and so people are, like you said, taking more and more risk based on that. And it sounds like just from talking to you, you have uh, obviously a deep psychology of how to invest. I, I well, in your book, right? The <laughs> your book, I'm sure, talks about the hands-off investor, right? Investing guide to passive real estate. Um, what kind of psychology can people take in a time where? There, everything's going up. Everyone's making money around you. Everyone's doing great. Everyone's a genius trader. What's the psychology that you run through? Maybe would teach your kids or your nephew or something like that when investing in a time period like this. Well, to not not forget about the other side. What do you want to be saying when everybody else is losing money? Do you want to be saying, "Gosh, those poor souls, uh, they should have been more careful," or do you want to be saying, "Like, um, do you have a number for a bankruptcy attorney? I need help." Yeah. You know, which which seat do you want to sit in? Uh, I think it, it always pays to be a little bit more uh, a little bit more conservative and make sure that you survive because this is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's a marathon with really no finish line. So you got to be able to keep going. And, you know, I had a, uh, a friend of mine who was looking to invest with us. He managed uh, money for a family office that was one of the wealthiest uh, families in the country. And he told me a story about when he got hired. He said that in his interview, uh, the head of the family basically told him, uh, don't be a hero. Uh, I'm already rich. Just don't lose my freaking money. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it came down to. And, and he knew the value of, you know, a dollar that you lose is a, is worse than a dollar you didn't make because you know, now you got to make $2 to make a dollar after you lose one. So, uh, you know, just don't lose money. You know, I've been knock on wood. I've been fortunate. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've never lost a nickel of investor mm-hmm. principal and we've raised over $200 million. Now I can say with absolute certainty, not all our investments perform the way we want. And that's life. It will happen everywhere. It happens to everyone. Uh, but uh, we haven't lost money. And that's, I think, being conservative uh, and maybe even lucky at times is, uh, is all part of how you survive well, that. Well, over 30 years, I think you start, you start turning from luck to more of you've got good principles and things, good things going on. I actually want to talk about that for a second. So a lot of people on this show that watch this show, they want to be like you one day. They want to run a big real estate fund. They want to run a multifamily fund. They, they want to get in your seat one day. Um, walk us through the mechanics of your business, of your funds at, internally? How do you um, ensure checks and balances are happening? How do you, you know, how do you work with chief investment officers, people like that? And mer- do you have meritocracy within your business? Walk us through the inner workings and culture of your fund and business and how you guys continually make prudent and smart investing decisions over 30 years. Well, a lot of it comes down to the fact that um, I look at it like, you know, I won't stamp my name on something without having looked at it myself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what I mean by that is I've got the final veto power, right? I have a, a great team that can, you know, will bring me uh, our next potential opportunity and they basically call me the grim reaper of <laughs> deals. 
so I'm the I'm the one that has the last chance to kill it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to look at those numbers uh, every which way and look for the risk and, and all that stuff before I sign off on it. So I think that is part of it. The other part of it is I have an incredibly experienced team. You know, between the senior management folks here at Praxis, we have 100,000 units of multifamily experience with careers ranging between 25 years and 40 years. And that's a long time to be in this business. So I think that we've seen a lot and, you know, that certainly helps keep us out of trouble. Uh, but, but really, it just comes down to uh, having really accurate underwriting tools uh, that will show us where the risk is and enable us to quantify uh, that risk and model up different methods of financing to make sure that we're making sound decisions. I, I think it, it really comes down to just making really good sound decisions and a policy that if any if anyone if we have we have basically four people on our investment committee and if one person says no to a deal it's a no you don't get outvoted uh, if one person says no it's a no but if it's a yes everybody has to say yes right so it, it takes a lot more to get into a deal because I learned something a long time ago I learned that it's you know, it, people say it's so hard to get deals, right? So hard to find good properties to buy. But I will tell you, if you think that's hard, here's something that's even harder. Getting out of a bad one. If you have a property that's just not performing or is a total thorn in your side, it is extremely difficult to get out of that. And I would rather struggle to buy something and struggle to sell something. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm a, uh, an airplane pilot. I got my license when I was in high school. And there's an old saying among pilots that say that I'd rather be on the ground wishing I was in the air <laughs> than being in the air wishing I was on the ground. Yeah. Wow, that's spot on. And it's and I, I know when you see a lot of deals like that, especially when, in my funds as well, we've had, it's always the, well, you always remember the bad deals the most because they are, like you said, the thorn in your side that takes, oh, <laughs> takes and then and ruins the other good deals, right? As well. Um, I want to talk about the the four four to one. So anyone can veto. Four have to approve it. So it's hard to find good deals, but it's also hard to find good deals that four other people will agree with you. That is also a good deal. Um, have you done that since you began, or and how did you develop that over over time? Was it because of a few bad deals that happened? <laughs> how did you get into that? Well, I think it just made sense to me that. Uh, you know, if anybody objects, they see something and I have to respect their experience and recognize that if somebody sees something that none of the others see, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It may mean that, you know, all of us are wrong. And the only way you're going to find out is to get into the deal and see how it goes. Now, I would rather just say, well, <laughs> maybe they know something I don't know will pass than say, OK, you know, nice opinion, but we're moving forward anyway. And then later on go, dang, you were right. And, you know, now we've got this huge problem. And if we would have listened to you in the beginning, we wouldn't have this huge problem. So to me, it's just gotcha. easier that way. Tell us about your story a little bit, Brian. I, I am curious how you actually got in this game. And actually, um, you mentioned, you know, you went from syndicates first and you moved to the fund model. Walk us through a little bit of your story getting into this and and then eventually finding the fund model, using the fund model. And, and there's a lot that goes, and I'll probably have a ton of follow-up questions of how'd you find your initial investors? How'd you find partners? How'd you find properties and deals and pull it all together? But walk us through a little bit of your story. 
Yeah, and, and, and that'll actually pull together a lot of those follow-up questions. I mean, my story began, yeah. uh, you know, investing on my own, you know, pulling together money however I could to buy, fix, and resell houses. And I was using credit cards and credit lines and, you know, all kinds of wacky stuff to be able to you know, creative financing to get into uh, houses to fix up and resell. And when I had finally gotten good enough at that, I decided that in order for me to grow my business, I needed more capital. Uh, I also needed more time. So the first thing I had to do was quit my job. And I was in law enforcement, so I went into the station, I put in my two weeks notice, and then I immediately told all of the uh, guys I worked with that you know I was going to start doing my real estate thing full time. And by the way, I rented out the room at the community center. If all you guys will come down there, I'm going to tell you about what I'm doing in real estate. So everybody mm -hmm. was interested. Of course, they, this guy yeah. just quit his job. I got to go find out how he did it. So they all come <laughs> down to the community center. And I gave a presentation on real estate. And I said, if you guys will invest with me, I'll take as little as $5,000 and I'll split the profits 50-50 with you guys. Mm -hmm. And that was literally the first time I'd ever raised capital. And it was a fund. That was a wow. fund. My very first one was a fund because I pooled together $500,000 in capital out of that meeting uh, with minimum investments as low as $5,000, believe it or not. Yeah. And, you know, now I had, you know, 28 new investors and all of them are carrying guns. And I realized, like, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of cops as investors. If I screw this up, I'm a dead man. So I've got to do this right and not lose any of their money. So that what, that's what really ingrained to me, you know, don't screw up. So then I, I built this, you know, not really nice house flipping business and eventually that grew and then it grew some more. And then I started getting into other things, commercial, self-storage, multifamily, uh, development, uh, you know, just kind of natural progression through my career of trying various different things. Uh, and, and then uh, then the great financial collapse hit. And at that point, uh, it was time to uh, to make a decision and either shrivel up into a hole or grow grow my way out of you know out of my own hole so decided to grow my way out and grew the business raised a ton more money was flipping over 100 houses a year and we did that just by raising money from a variety of people and kind of growing that initial fund I had built of 500 grand into a much larger fund of you know a few million and it was all just and word still, of mouth. Still flips. Still Correct flips. Yeah. Still flipping houses. I, still I love it. Still flipping houses. Yeah. And just kind of grew it through word of mouth and referrals, flipping houses. And then, um, uh, and meanwhile, I, I had, you know, early on, I had bought some houses for my own like rental portfolio that I sold on 1031 exchange by apartment building. So, you know, now I was in the apartment business kind of on the side mm. and then realized like, I need to grow this apartment business. But in order to do that, I'm gonna have to raise more money. Well, I didn't wanna do it on a fund level. So I did this single asset syndication model. I said, I'm gonna find an apartment building. I'm gonna raise money for that deal. And then I'll find another one. I'll raise money for that deal. And that's mm. what I started doing. And uh, gosh, that was about 20 years ago. And then, uh, and then about uh, six years ago, I started buying like two multifamilies at a time and raising money in one vehicle for two and then decided like, you know, why don't I stop doing that and just raise a, you know, a fund. So last year we did a $50 million fund, raised $50 million. Now we have discretionary capital. We go out and buy multifamily assets using that fund. So, so really the, cool. the whole growth trajectory was start small and then step by step by step by step by step. Jeez, I love it. And uh, to start house flipping with, <laughs> with police officers' money, what what a great way to start and get into this game. And now, uh, today though, the multifamily properties, how many units are you guys typically looking at? 
Uh, 100 units is our minimum, but really okay. we prefer 150 and up. And, you know, we've, our largest property is 540 units. Hmm. Uh, our smallest one right now, I think is, uh, is 94. Gotcha. And it's, this is just out of that $150 million fund or do you have other funds as well? No, this is a, uh, still a lot of single asset syndications that we have left. Oh, okay. And then, uh, and then we have some that are in an earlier fund that we did, uh, year before last. And then we have some that were in some of these like two pack deals that we did the year before that. Did you have, I get this question a lot. Do you have difficulty transitioning from the single syndication to a fund from investors? And then you kick back. I don't want to do that. I like the syndications. And how did you make that? And you're still in that transition. It sounds like, how has that gone for you? It's a, it's a massive transformation. And, and I, I think that people underrate the difficulty of making that switch. Uh, I hear a lot of people that are like, you know, hey, I want to get into multifamily. I'm going to set up a fund. Good luck. I hear other people that say, I did my first two deals. Now I'm going to move to the fund model. Good luck. Here's the issue. When you're doing a single asset syndication, a potential investor gets to look at you. They get to look at the asset. They get to look at the numbers. They get to look at the market. They they get to say, like, I sign off on all of those things. Uh, I believe in, in the location. I believe in the numbers. I believe in the underwriting, everything. They get to see it all. In a fund, they get to believe in one thing, and that's you. Hmm. That's all they have is you. And so if you don't have a track record to show why they should trust you, blanketly trust you to make the right decision, they're not going to make the investment. So, you know, you'll see uh, you have a lot of objection in a fund from investors who will say, a couple of different things. One thing they might say is, geez, I only like to invest if I can see the asset. That just means I don't trust you yet. Yeah. Uh, they might say uh, something like, you know, I don't like commingled funds. I like to just be in, 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 one, in one deal at a time. Uh, they, they probably don't trust you yet. Uh, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And that's the biggest objection you're going to get. For us, we felt that it was the right time because we knew, you know, we've got an extensive track record going back decades. We've got thousands of units to show uh, we've got, you know, all kinds of uh, proof of concept and track record. And the book came out and just kind of with everything kind of falling into place at once. It felt like the right time. Mm -hmm. And despite all of that, we still had pushback from some investors. Now, certainly we raised all the money we intended to raise and then some. Yeah. Uh, but we still had pushback from investors. Gotcha. Yeah. When I've heard that from a number of managers is, is that is a quite a, quite a transition. It sounds like you guys have done it well though, and are continuing to, to move investors. Are you a hundred percent now in the fund? Like you're going to launch another fund here soon and you'll keep running the fund model and get rid of the syndications. Most likely. Yes. We, uh, you know, our last fund was, uh, fund six, which was really our 11th fund. We didn't name them and number them until later. So it was our fund six, but, uh, we already have a waiting list for fund seven that we haven't even announced or launched yet. Um, so yeah, we're, we're planning to do mostly the fund model. Now, what we did do in our, in lately though, we had a number of investors that, uh, you know, just no matter what would never invest in a fund. And so we created a sidecar investment for them, which co-invested with the fund in specific already identified assets. Mm -hmm. And that was very successful. So we are able to kind of dual track a little bit to make sure that all of our clients, you know, have a product that uh, that they can get Makes behind. Sense. Yeah. 
Oh, I love it. Well, congrats on the fundraising and all that's that's gone on there. Um, I know your time's valuable. I got last just two questions for you here. Um, number one is, is there a good way people can get in contact with you or your team or your company or find your book? What are some good ways that people can find more out about what you're doing, what's going on? Yeah, a few good ways. Um, they can go to our website, which is praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. On there, you can learn more about us. You can uh, fill out a form to have us contact you. I think you can get a bonus, yeah, the intro chapter to the book uh, for free on the website through the pop-up. Um, the uh, the book's available at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. It's also available on Amazon and supposedly in bookstores everywhere, but I don't know. I haven't been to a bookstore in so long. I'm not sure. Uh, <clears throat> they can also uh, find me on Instagram at investor Brian Burke or on biggerpockets.com answering questions in the Q&A forum. So plenty of ways really to find great. it around. I love it. Um, and the book, again, is called The Hands-Off Investor and Investor's Guide to Investing in Passive Real Estate Syndications as well. So if you see it on the, in, in your local Barnes and Noble, I haven't been to a bookstore in, in I don't know how long, but um, I love it. Now, Brian, last question I want to ask you, I love asking my guests this question. I'm going to give you the mic for two minutes un, uninterrupted. What are some things that you think is most valuable to leave this audience with? You can talk politics, you can talk religion, you can talk faith, family, real estate, whatever you'd like to do. Um, but what, whatever you think is in your soul, that's the you know most deepest, best thing that, that you could share with this audience. We'd love to hear. I haven't, I haven't teed you up on this question. This is just, this is going to be a raw question, right? From Brian. So here we go, Brian, you got two minutes. Let's hear it from you. Well, the, the fortunate thing for your audience is I only know about two things and that's real estate and aviation. So nobody's listening to this podcast to talk about airplanes and helicopters. So I guess I'll just leave that one alone and I'll stick with real estate. So that's why everybody is here. Uh, and since it's really the only thing I know, um, let's see, what's the, some great advice for, for people? You, you're right. You didn't I know, catch me I, I didn't guard, even, I, I want to hear a raw answer. Something. What's the first thing that you, comes to mind? Yes, you <laughs> sure did. Yeah, you sure did. So I, I would say the first thing that comes to mind for me is when I think back to when I was first trying to get started in this business and, you know, what, what could have really held me back from, you know, getting from where I was, which was essentially penniless, knowledgeless, relationshipless in the business. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything to, you know, now having bought over a half a billion dollars in real estate, raised over 200 million from investors. How do you get from there to here? And I, I, I tell this analogy, there's really three ways to do it. Uh, let's imagine yourself standing in your backyard and you need to get up on your roof. Uh, there's, there's three ways to get there. Uh, one way is you just jump up. Uh, and that's the person who says, I'm going to go do my first deal and I'm going to go buy a hundred unit multifamily property. I'm going to jump straight to the roof. I want to be on the top and I want to get there right now. Well, what will happen to most people who try to jump up onto their roof is they'll slip and they'll break their leg or break their arm. Uh, but they might also fall on top of someone else and break their arm too. And you might injure somebody else in this process. So that might not be the best way to get up on the roof. There's another way, and that's to climb a ladder. You throw a ladder up against the roof and you go up one rung at a time. And that's how I did it. I flipped 
small houses, then I flipped bigger houses, and then I did bought duplexes, and then I did five unit, then 20 unit, then 60 unit, then 100 unit, then 500 unit. That's how I got from the ground to the roof. Uh, to me, it's the safest and most surefire way, but there's downside. It takes the longest because it takes a while to build that track record up. The third way is you can find somebody that's already up on the roof uh, that can throw you down a rope and you can climb the rope while they're hoisting you at the same time and you can get there a little bit faster. And that's the same model as like partnering with someone or joining up with another firm to build your track record and experience. Those are really the three ways to do it. But there's one way not to do it. And that one way not to do it is to give up because if you give up, you're probably going to give up about 15 seconds before you were going to have your major breakthrough that actually uh, got you up on that roof once and for all. So that's I there's my it. two minutes. Wise words, uh, the three different ways to, to get up there and, and follow. And it's, it's been a fantastic episode. Brian, thank you for coming on. Very cool to hear all the stuff you're working on. We'll have to follow up with you maybe in a year from now and see what has happened and, and what's going on there and, and what's happening in real estate and your funds and, and if the predictions were correct and all the types of things would be fun to talk about. So Brian, again, thank you so much. Again, Brian Burke, uh, go look him up on LinkedIn, Instagram as well. The book is The Hands-Off Investor, an investor's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications. Brian, thank you again for coming on. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Hey, hey, it's Bridger here. I have four free and simple ways I can further help you to scale your business or fund. Number one, I have a YouTube channel with actually, I don't, to toot my own horn, I think it's decent content on there. Go check it out. Bridger Pennington is a YouTube channel. We go very deep on funds. Number two, I have a one hour free training at investmentfundsecrets.com. We go very deep into how to actually start and scale your very own fund from ground zero. Number three, you can join our free private Facebook group of like-minded people like me and you that go out and launch and scale funds. I go live in there once a week. The name of the group is Investment Fund Secrets. And then number four, finally, I have a free PDF guide on how to actually launch and scale your fund. If you go to investmentfundsecrets.com slash guide, you can download that guide. Now, finally, people always ask me, Bridger, can you help me one-on-one? -on -one? Can we work together? Yes, I don't want to talk about that in here. But if you want to learn more, message me, Bridger at investmentfundsecrets.com or just DM me on Instagram. Thank you guys. And I'll see you in the next episode.